what to talk about. I actually have a few ideas. And on one hand, as I, I sit here, I'm, I wonder what's, what's happening with you, what's, what's happening in your practice, what's happening in your lives. And I'm, I'm very interested in, in each person here as an individual, and, and I have, I'm a little sad sometimes that I don't actually know each of you that well. And so on one hand, we could, we could talk story. We could tell each other stories, and there would be a, a kind of shared humanity that we'd find in that, and it's a beautiful thing. And, and human beings have been telling stories and connecting through telling stories for a long time. And in, that's one side of my mind. And then the other side is saying, isn't it amazing when we stop when we come into the, into the uh, field of the Dharma. The field of the Dharma is the field of the living reality. And in the sitting practice, I invited everyone to, as I always do, but it comes out a little differently each week, but I invited you to, to experience the, what I call the living present, feel the the aliveness of the sensations, where your rear touches the cushion, where your arms, your legs, you feel your whole body, your, the vibration, the pulse, the living quality. To notice the gentle movements that the body makes when it breathes. Notice the sense experiences as they display themselves, the sounds, the smells, the tastes the sensations in the body, the moods, the thoughts, the images, everything that, that we experience as a human being in real time. So mostly when we talk to each other, we talk about ourselves, but we often don't speak directly. And that's the unique, unique experience of Dharma is that we both try to speak and we try to experience ourselves as we actually are, not, the, not based on memory or the historical version of ourselves, but what we're actually experiencing. So I invite you, even as you listen, to notice what are you experiencing now? You could ask yourself as a starting question, am I aware? Don't look to the past to decide that. Just notice how imminent that sense of being aware is. And then if you discover that you're aware, what are you aware of? And there may be external mindfulness, my, me, my voice, the room. There may be internal mindfulness, some sensations, some moods, some kinds of internal commentary. And this is what we might call studying ourselves, studying our immediate experience. That's what the, um, this is not the psychological way that we usually study ourselves. This is the direct study of ourselves. This is where mindful attention comes into play. Mindful attention only knows and comprehends what is happening at one of the six doors of perception. The eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, thought, feelings. So this is what it means in the Dharma to study ourselves. 
And I was just naturally pulled this evening to, to test out and study what, what the Buddha said about what happens when we study ourselves. When we study ourselves, and I think that the reason I feel so compelled to speak of this is because this is not where we're usually dwelling in our life. And so at the risk of not feeling relevant to whatever you may be going through, uh, I, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I started to study myself a little bit, what I call myself, and you st- hopefully we're studying what you call yourself. And I noticed that, um, that what came into my mind as a thought was, oh, the Buddha says that when you study yourself, you will find, if you study yourself directly and intimately, you will find that every single experience that becomes known to you in awareness Everything that lights up and is known, whether it's and in the case of my my inquiry, I felt my felt the arms, and I didn't actually once I my mind said this little thought arms, which is an amazing thing that I could put a word on this what was just a felt experience of sensations. So I moved beyond the, the domain of sensation, of, uh, of the concept of arms, and I felt the, the living reality of that, which was just sensation. And what the Buddha said about that, whatever that sensation is, that all experiences that can be known are in a state of flux, are impermanent and changing. Not one experience, not one sensation lasts. And whatever sensation is not lasting cannot also, cannot give lasting satisfaction either. There's no satisfaction to be found. I can't say, I can't just rest there and say, oh, this, this is, this will give me, um, a lasting feeling of, of peace because my attention is resting here. So it was, it's impermanent, it's unreliable or unsatisfactory as a source of, of, um, of happiness, you could say. And it became clear, as I felt the sensations of the arms, these arms are not myself. Whatever the sensations are, are marked by the characteristic of not-self. The sensations are not-self. There is not-self to be found in sensations. There's just sensations flashing on and off. And then I studied the, the mood of that, I, that there was a feeling of delight that came with that, with that recognition. And that mood of delight, that mental state, also revealed itself to be fleeting, ungraspable. And that, that feeling of delight itself is not self, marked by not self. That's not self, a feeling of delight. That's a feeling of delight. 
So studying what I call myself, I see that everything that becomes known is not self. And then it was a thought, fleeting like a cloud passing through an empty sky. And there may have been another thought that said, that's my thought. But even that thought of my thought, coming and going, ungraspable, that thought of myself, not self, just a thought. Every experience, no matter how much attention was, uh, was um, how much an experience called the attention forward, no matter what I paid attention to, so to speak, whatever it was in my experience, as I studied myself, I saw that every experience was marked by not-self. This is not-self. So this is the paradox of practice. In order to study, in order to discover the not-self, the not-myself, the arms are not myself, the legs are not myself, the heart is not myself, the eyes are not myself. These are simply elements. They are processes, functions. But in order to do that, you didn't do that, I did that. I had to, I studied what I call myself. And I had to be here in order to do that. I had to have taken birth in such and such family, in such and such time, I had to become somebody in order to see that that somebody that I take to be myself is actually every element of that somebody is marked by not-self. Impermanent, ungraspable, and not me, not mine. So how do we How do we accommodate the fact that I'm here and you're here, but none of it is self? That everything is marked by self, by non-self. And the implications of this are, are enormous. The implications of this paradox. Because if I if I were to say there is no self, if I were to say that, it would just be a thought. It would just be an idea. And it also would be a kind of, it would be a view of reality. And it would also negate the fact that, um, that I'm sitting here. It might. So, that, so the Buddha never said there's no self. Any kind of view like that, he would say, this is, um, this is a, a an absolute view, and this is a kind. This is a mental fixation. But he did say that everything that we take to be self is marked by not self, is not self. So it allows for the mingling of what are called the two truths: the truth that you're here, that you are uniquely and wonderfully creatively individual, 
and that every single element of your what you call yourself is marked by not-self. It's a process that appears and disappears. The body ages, it changes, it does it all by itself. It's marked by selflessness. The head is marked by selflessness. The hair is marked by selflessness. The nails are marked by selflessness. The nails are not myself. So how do you feel when I talk about that? Well, as I started to say, the implications of this are enormous. Because one of the one of the deep meanings of this, at least it is to me, is that um, is that it is that our practice is not about transcending ourselves. It's not about getting rid of ourselves. It is to see that everything about you, to not just to see it, but to experience it, everything about you is marked by not-self. And not-self also means it is marked by being not-separate. So, for example, the what we call our bodies, it is not, they are not separate from the elements of earth, air, fire, water. The shape and form of your body is not separate from the genetic pool from which you are, were born. It, not separate from the sun, from the rain, from the food. There is not one element within this mind-body process that exists completely alone, apart from everything. And this is something when we study ourselves and we come into the intimacy and the wildness of being present, we begin to intuit that intimacy with all things, with everything around us. We can reflect, as I often do here on Tuesday night, how each of us came to be here. And if we were to look far enough back, or we don't even have to look far back, you realize that everything that ever happened at all times in every circumstance in the world had to happen that way in order for us to be here. Everything was conspiring to bring us together tonight in this way. Our coming together has non-personal, non-self elements to it. Just that alone. Everything had to happen. One little turn of the wheel and you might have had different parents. Just kidding. You couldn't have different parents. One turn of the wheel and you may not have been born. One little look in somebody's eyes. Some crop that may not have made it on some corner of the world may have, have you know, led to a particular excessive use of a certain kind of food that became part of a certain kind of culture that led to certain kinds of diseases and certain kinds of tendencies. We, there is not one part of us that exists independently alone apart from everything. So that is another way of understanding not-self. When we're quiet, 
when we come into, um, when we, as I always like to quote the poet Donald Babcock, when we ease, when we ease ourselves, when we sense life right where it touches us, when we just experience life intimately, it's another way of saying we are easing, as he says it, we are easing into the boundless, into the interdependent, right where it touches us. So we are not apart from everything that we are in conflict with. All the beings who are causing harm are being harmed. We are not, we don't exist ourselves alone. No wonder we hurt so much. And sometimes don't even know why. When we're quiet, when, and the interesting thing about being quiet is it requires a certain aloneness. It means studying ourselves. It means coming back into our bodies. And it turns out that paradoxically, another paradox, is that autonomy, being whole in ourselves, being settled in ourselves, is what makes possible intimacy, both in relationships and in just our experience of the world. When we are not whole in ourselves, we often feel very disconnected from reality, disconnected from each other, often very reactive. When, we, when we're quiet together, we can't find any dividing line. In fact, when we're really quiet, we can't even find a self. We see that our immediate and direct experience is marked by not-self. And as one sutra puts it, the Avatamsaka Sutra, the sutra from the Mahayana school, it says, having no view of self, having no view of self, one is always peaceful. And when we're peaceful, we don't... We're not busy dividing. We're not in contentiousness with ourselves, with reality. We're intimate. And very satisfied. That may not match our normal view about ourselves as being chronically dissatisfied. But that satisfaction, that sense of having everything is literally a split second away, a split second of autonomy or intimacy away. It's not even away when we're here. It's right here. So when we feel the not-self element, characteristic of our experience, the not-separate, the not not uh, apart from. Can't think about it. You got to feel it. You can think about it, but you'll just make yourself goofy. So right now, as you feel the sensations here, 
are the sensations self. As you experience whatever mood may be arising is the mood self. As you hear the sound of silence is that hearing self. As the body breathes is the breathing self. As confusion may be arising, is confusion self. Or anger, is anger self. Or sadness. Whose phone is that? (laughs) The reason I bring this up, all of this, is that we are most unhappy when everything when things are being taken personally. But the more we experience the the changing, ungraspable, non-self element of our life and our experience, and from from the vastness of what brought us to, to be, to the unbidden flow of thoughts and feelings and circumstances and all everything that flows through our life, if we can experience it in its true nature, it stops being so personal. And when it stops being so personal, it just is what it is. A sound is a sound, a smell is a smell, a taste is a taste, touch is a touch, a mood is a mood, and it doesn't have to be solely all about me. We at least we see the difference between the self-referencing and the reality. The self the reality may be that the giants win the game. But whether you're happy or not depends on whether you're identified with the giants or the royals. Do you have your hand up or are you just holding? Please, go ahead. You understand self and non-self? Yes, that all the elements that brought us that are not our fault. I also I, the feeling of 
knowing someone killed. The, the feeling of knowing someone that's getting killed. That's getting killed. Yes, that's getting killed in this moment. Who's starving to death? There are people who are stealing, killing, raping, everything. You feel it, yes. It's felt. Yes. Who gets stuck with that? You say people can get stuck with that. That's a concern that you have that people might... Yes, Marx once said that. Religion is the opiate of the masses. I think sometimes that yes. Buddhism is an opiate for people who are well off. In this country. Is that true? A belief, a belief is not necessarily true. But I appreciate I appreciate your view. I know. I can't get rid of my socialist upbringing. Your socialist upbringing is not self. <laughs> yes. I think I think in terms of the Buddhism being an opiate of the masses and and or I mean an opiate uh, a kind of opiate for the for the privileged and the and the well-to-do I think that um, that is for each well-to-do Buddhist to resolve and not for you and for you to resolve how the, how you how that is experienced in your mind and body Yes, and when you walk down the street and feel it, and then and those feelings are are to be felt and recognized for what they are. People, what? There are people being displaced. There are people being displaced. Yes. Becoming a city 
Yes, the city is becoming a city for the wealthy. It used to be a city that, that respected a diversity of economics, and there, no doubt about it. And again, each of us has to resolve that in our... Yes, and so so I can I, I appreciate how that affects you, but I cannot I cannot I cannot help how that affects you. Well, yes. Well, the the Buddha did not resolve it in the whole world, but the Buddha uh, the Buddha created the the sangha, uh, completely egalitarian, and the the wealthy and the and the the people had nothing, wore the same robes, ate the same food, everyone did the same. So that was a that was the resolution at that time for him, and he also at the same time depended on the wealthy. The wealthy donors for to support their sangha, so it's we, it's our mind has a tendency to look for the someone to blame, and in some ways, when you see the the more privileged taking over the city, there's a tendency to to uh, ascribe blame, and then it becomes this kind of monolith of blaming the the privileged, and you know, so that's just another it can become another view. Well, who are you going to hold responsible? Corporations. Yeah, and who are corporations? Yeah, see, these are all, these are all monoliths that they have also are marked by not-self. They're made up of all, be, all the beings. And so this is a, it's a problem with, with our mind creating selves and views that we divide the world into, and when we divide, heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. It's just, it's unresolvable. You've created a circle of... Well, we're dialoguing right now. Yes, we're dialoguing. This is not, we're not having a cross discussion. You and I are talking right now. So, yes, it came from a board of yes, yes, and I I can feel that you're full of full of those feelings. And what this is an opportunity to let that let that percolate and and if necessary, give voice to it, but. Yeah. <laughs> Are you? Is ever anyone else resonate with what? Uh, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but with what Noemi is saying about the the displacement of the of the people in San Francisco and the 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 the, the dissipation of the economic diversity and. You resonate. Yeah, you have a lot of company here. 
Well, it, it's, if, you, if you noticed, when I started this evening, I said we could talk about all the ver- various issues that are happening, and, there, and all of our issues and all of our stories are, are, um, are important, and, but, but this is something that's not very, not very commonly talked about in our lives, and that we need to balance being caught up in the in the situations of our life, in the politics of our life, in the in the all the the difficulties of our life, and see what's actually happening here in real time, because it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss, and that there is um, that if we have that kind of intimacy with ourselves, with each other. These uh, a lot of the it, it actually opens up the heart that makes us able makes us responsive to situations like that. You have that already. You you live your life in a way where you're paying attention. A lot of us are just you know spinning very quickly, stressed out, and not really noticing, and not really not really feeling that sense of non separateness from the from the people who are being displaced. You have that. So your voice is really important, but this time is for people to, to learn intimacy. And so that, so that as we walk out of here and you, keep, you bring your life into this intimacy, you're, maybe someone else here will have the same kind of passionate response that you do. Hopefully. So, but it's just a matter of emphasis. Okay. Anyway, we've run out of time, and I so appreciate everyone listening to the dialogue. And, and I guess I would invite everyone just for a few minutes to, to forget everything that's been said, including anything I said, including anything that you thought, including anything that has ever happened to you, including every worry about what may happen to you. And remember just for a moment that life is what's happening here. Our life is not of the past. It's not of the future. They don't exist. Life is only found in the living present. That's what makes it so vital. This is what allows us to recognize our place in the family of things. This is what allows us to find the stability and balance to meet the joys and the sorrows. This is what allows us to feel a deep kinship with our life. And if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. And let us, let's uh, share any blessings of our time together in practice with a deep wish that all beings 
can know intimacy, autonomy, know their non-separateness. And then in whatever way express their caring and their wisdom, wisdom without ill will. Let's pray that all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. That all beings can live with ease, have a place to live with ease. And that all beings be liberated from mental suffering. And may our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of others, not just about having a nice experience. Thank you. Look forward to seeing many of you on Sunday for the half day. And thank you for your generosity. And stay where you are at all times.